Novi, do you want to go skiing? No. Why not? You want to go outside? No. Do you want to win a million dollars? No. Do you want to get married someday? No. Hmm. Do you want to have presents on your birthday? Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist, the seventh largest, fastest growing podcast in all of Lake County that has to do with Nordic skiing. And um, I know we had thought that we were going to do a big pre-world championships show. I had the whole thing planned out. I did, honestly. We were, we were going to get Christy on here. We were going to do prediction segments. It was going to be great. And then, of course, life happened. And as you see here, we had Novi in studio trying to run the other computer. Um, and now there's three minutes and 30 seconds left to go until the Men's and Women's Sprint Classic gets going. I've got one screen ready to hit it, and we're going to watch the World Championships. But before that, I guess, you know, this will be somewhat on the honor code because you don't know when this comes out. Obviously, it'll be after the, the first races have happened, but 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 we're going to make some predictions anyway. Okay, so we got three minutes to go. Let's let's call the podium at least, right? I mean, we have so many things to get to to talk about, and I feel like the least we can do is make some sort of a bet on who's going to win. I did have some prop bets going, in, going into Worlds. Here we go. Um Let's go through these real quick. Two minutes and 50 seconds. Oh, my gosh. Um, a broken ski pole will determine the outcome of a race. Yes or no? That's one of our prop bets. Oh, man. Could a broken ski pole determine the outcome of a race? It's worlds. It gets feisty at the end. You know, we had the infamous Bolshinov clabo incident in 2021. I'm going to say no this time. So we're going to go no on the broken ski pole. The U.S. women will win a relay medal. Yes, they will. Ben Ogden will win a medal. Oh, man. It'd have to be today, wouldn't it? The big breakthrough performance. I mean, we got we got Chad Salmela on the mic. So if does he have a Ben Ogden? Here comes Ben Ogden ready for us. I don't know. Um, I'm feeling like he's going to get like fourth today. I don't know. I'm going to say... I'm going to say yes because... Maybe he wins one today, and or maybe they, they, the men pull out some crazy thing in like a team sprint. I don't know. We'll just say yes. What the heck? For fun. David Norris will be the top American at a distance event. Yes. Yes. We got to cheer for that. Okay, so we got three yeses and a no at the start there. Ivo Niskanen will win zero medals. Ooh. Ooh. Man, I mean, you got to think... In the the 50k classic, he's he's gonna be up there. I'm just gonna be wild and crazy. I'm gonna say, he, he yeah, he's gonna win zero medals. It's just it's kind of my upset special pick. Clabo uh, wins five golds. No, no, I know he should. We we want him to, but something weird's gonna happen. In fact, I feel like he's not even gonna win the team sprint today, or the the sprint today. Um, commentators will mention that Jesse Dickens goes to the pain cave. Yes, that will happen. Hundred percent. Devin Kershaw's name will be mentioned. Yes, he will be mentioned at some point during this week uh, on the broadcast. Uh, Rosie Brennan. Oh, sorry. Norwegian men will get beaten in the 4x10K relay. That would be almost impossible. I'm going to say, geez. Ajay, what do you think? Ajay just all of a sudden got up from her slumber. There must be a rabbit outside. 4x10. Ooh. Who could possibly beat them? I'm going to say no. All right, what what else do we got here? A couple more. A Rosie Brennan, over under for medals is 1.5. Ooh, let's go under. I think she might come away with one. Uh, Diggins, over under medals, 2.5. Well, she's going to win at least one individual, plus the team relay, team spread. I think she might get like three medals this time. I don't know. I'm just feeling it. Let's go over. So Diggins over, Brennan under. I think Diggins will have three. Brendan will have one. Um, someone will mention Clabo's ability to take the right line during his first heat again in the semi 
and again in the final. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> that's a little bit greedy. I mean, all the all of those tough to say. It's going to get mentioned at least once for sure today. It'll get mentioned. I don't think it's going to get mentioned in in his in each of his, but you know, let's just have some fun here. We will say that yes, it's going to get mentioned in all three of his heats at some point. Someone will mention his ability to find a lane and to find the right row. All right, um, predictions today. Who do we got on the podium? I think on the uh, girls' side, knowing nothing about the courses, why is my ski and snowboard live not working? Let's go. Click. Come on, people. I'm trying to load it up. Um, contenders, by the way, if you want to know some facts here, Clabo, he is going to win. He's going to try and win his third consecutive world title in the men's sprint. His second in the sprint classic. He's the only man in the world to have won multiple sprint titles. Um, we can talk more about these facts later, I suppose. Oh, this video is currently unavailable. Why? It shouldn't be. It should be live right now. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go, folks. Uh, we're refreshing the page and seeing if that makes a difference. I know, I'm just struggling to make my predictions, Ajay. I don't know. I need to at least see, like, the heat sheets or something come out. I mean, I know the obvious, it's going to be it's gonna be Clabo, the Juve, and some other random person. But let's have a little fun here. Something, it's World Championships. Clabo's supposed to win. He's about the most automatic bet in all of sports. So you know something weird's going to happen today. I think something weird will happen. So... Well, here we go. We're on right now. Hmm. Shestead looks ready to win this. I'm going to go Shestead, Dahlquist, Ribom. Okay, that's my pick for the girls' side. On the guys' side, we're going to go Lucas Shanova. Ben Ogden, and Onger, the Swede. Okay, there's my picks. I know. I got to do something crazy. All right. We'll see you after the, after the uh, show, folks. Uh, we'll have some instant reactions as we, uh, as we go. But we're going to tune in right now. World Champs, we'll be back on the Cedar Skier Podcast in a bit. Well, there you have it, folks. First day, World Champs wrapped up. And... Um, I guess the general notes are, wow, Falls, the French, Clabo's Magic, Sweden on the women's side. That's that's basically today in a nutshell. A um, lot of things going on there. We started out the quarterfinals. Antisova took a huge wipeout. It wasn't mentioned in the broadcast right away. Um, but, you know, the first, I think, we had, we had Falls in the first four heats, I believe, on the girls' side. So... The mixture of conditions, the course. What an interesting course, by the way. Um, kind of, it almost seemed like it was one of those courses long enough where you'd need a feed. I would think halfway through, I'm kind of shocked we didn't have coaches out there um, providing feeds. But uh, yeah, interesting with the um, dynamics of it. Uh, how it did, it did seem to me that the key points on that course. The the steepest uphill climb where everyone was herringbone. That's where a lot of the trip ups were happening. We saw Volnes break his ski. We saw Anger go down in dramatic fashion. Uh, we also saw Shestead get just blown out of the picture at that point in the final. She just looked demoralized. That seemed to me to be the key point in the course. And also whoever arrived first at the hairpin um, left hand kind of uh, U turn about two minutes into the into the course. So that those were the kind of the key points that sort of emerged as I was watching it. I took some notes, you know, going through some of these quarterfinals. Some of these are, uh, you know, wow, did you see that type notes? Some of them are more profound. So we'll kind of see where the rambling goes. But you know, first things first in that in that quarterfinal, getting right to the um, Americans. Kern, very smart. I thought she raced that well up front. You could you could see she double pulled out in the in the quarterfinal. 
until she was in the lead and sort of established her presence. I'm a little shocked. It did, in the second, in the semifinal, she just didn't get out that hard. And, you know, so I don't know if that was a product of her semifinal being more loaded, people coming out a little bit stronger. But um, I thought the way she raced in the quarters to me was like, oh man, she is going to get to the final and I think she's going to contend. And and if she was able, would have been able to do that throughout, I think she would have. So I'm not really sure, again, like what the reasoning was there, if that was like a strategic move, but you saw Rosie Brennan and Julia Kern in their semifinal, both at the back coming out of the stadium, uh, which was not a good sign, you know? So I don't know. And, and some, you know, could have been skis too. We saw ski speed differences throughout. So interesting there, but that was something I noticed right away in the quarterfinal. And the other thing on this course, man, a lot of double pull happening, you know, in key areas, the start. So establishing position, double pulling out was, was huge. But then there were there were just several prolonged stretches where uh, double pull came out. We saw, of course, in the home stretch, things getting mixed up all over the place in the girls and the guys' side. Jules Chapa, in particular, you know, making good usage of that double pull in the men's semifinal and final even. Uh, but I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. And, and when it comes to the double pull... Um, uh, oh, another point that I'll bring this up. I know this wasn't really brought up, but... Yoensu, when she fell in her quarterfinal, was really a bummer. She was skiing a great quarterfinal. I mean, we could just go down the list. There were tons of athletes who were skiing great and then got tripped up or something random happened. But she was one of them. And I don't know if you noticed this, but man, she really clawed her way back into the picture in her quarter. She would have qualified had she had more in the double pull and the finish. And it didn't really appear to me like she was fried you know, even though she had fallen and come back, it appeared to me that she just did not have the same double pulling ability as Rizek of Germany, who bumped the fin out by about a tenth of a second. So granted the fin fell, but again, it was just another example of like that double pull in the final stretch becoming very critical. And um, the reason I bring that up is, you know, there's been some of this conversation over Facebook just very recently on the Nordic Ski uh, website, Facebook posts about double polling ability, differences in technique between ski classics athletes, World Cup athletes, blah, blah, blah. And I know it, it's kind of th- those two sports are, are it is almost like two distinct sports. Um, however, I think when, it, when you isolate that technique, uh, there's a lot of conversation to be had between what like ski classics athletes are doing, what World Cup athletes are doing, and maybe more poignant, which World Cup athletes really have mastered the double pull in a way that suits World Cup courses. Because I don't think everyone really has. And in, and today in the sprint, that was kind of a takeaway for me at least was, hey, look, this, this course isolated people's ability to double pull over a variety of different uh, terrains at a variety of different points in a, you know, fatigue-wise and everything. It, it really put that on display. And if you had to at least have an adequate double pull to contend, you know, I, I wouldn't say Klabo's double pull is like, that's the thing that you, that sticks out. He, his technique across all sub-techniques is phenomenal. Um, but, but people don't really like go, that's, Klabo is the double pull guy, but clearly he has, um, he knows how to double pull on a variety of different inclines and at a variety of different speeds and points where you're fatigued. And I mean, there, the, no one has really seemed to come up with a sprint course that could defeat him except for maybe the French. And that might've just been an unlucky incidence too. Um, so double bowling actually coming into play here on this sprint course. Also though, the, the, the savviness was huge. You know, athletes who were able to stay on their feet, athletes who um, knew positioning-wise where to be, uh, that that played a key role as the course tended to deteriorate. Okay, continuing on my random notes uh, from quarterfinals. Oh, here was one. How about this? If you go back and watch this, this was crazy. I thought, uh, Baranova, I think Czech Republic. Is she Czech Republic or Slovakia? I can't remember. But watch the start of her quarterfinal. She literally walks out of the gate. And interesting approach, right? And she ended up getting third, had a lucky loser spot. I'm surprised that in the replay of that broadcast, you know, they mentioned how she was... I don't even know if if Keegan and Chad mentioned this even on the replay, but it stuck out to me from the gun where it almost looked like she was like half asleep at the start and just moseyed on into last place by a long way, worked her way up, had something at the end, and and all of a sudden at the finish line, it's like, whoa, she's in third. That was... um, That was interesting, and I think it, it it seemed to me like some of the wiser athletes were realizing, 
that as they watched other quarters and semis go, that the beginning of that race, the first really two thirds of the race was about staying out of trouble. And Clabo did that in his heats as well. It was like, I just need to make sure I get through that steep herringbone climb without getting clipped because that's really the highest risk zone. Um, and, and he kind of in this quarter in semis was like, I'll do that by, by having people in front of me so I can see them. And then in the final, it was like everyone here, no one here can match me. So I'm just going to time trial this, you know, but, um, yeah, I'm kind of shocked that some of these other athletes didn't take maybe that approach of either you got to do what Kern did, go way out in front right away or Baranova where it's like, I'll let all these other people, you know, um, use up all their energy early. I'm going to stay out of trouble and then I'll, I'll come, later in the course where there really was a lot of room um okay let's see i got some other great quarterfinal notes Anger, what a present he gave the norwegians in that quarterfinal if you see that um and then the slow-mo so Anger gets tangled up in the herringbone section one of many victims in that spot and then Klabo actually stepped on his pole shaft <laughs> so that was kind of an interesting thing i saw um Klabo, also a purist pure classic boots i love it and um uh, how about that slow up at the end, though, in the quarterfinal? That made me kind of nervous. Like, dude, what is the point? You are not saving yourself that much energy by, like, is slowing up that much. We saw this. There were several athletes who made some precarious, like, strange decisions in terms of energy management. Paul Goldberg, as well, he actually braked at the end of one of his heats. He was in second, and there was a charging... Um, a charging athlete, but you you see on the slow mo, he broke two feet before the he, he had his ski out of the tracks, like he was doing a snowplow. And I'm like, is he past the line? No, there's the line. So I don't know, athletes, uh, younger athletes. If you listen to this podcast, I don't know. That seems like a really stupid thing that World Cup athletes do. Maybe the one weakness, the glaring weakness we see from Johannes Klabo, is that he um, doesn't really know how to handle finishing stretches. It seems, I mean, yeah, he's got an awareness and people can say like, no dude, the sixth sense is there, is there as well. But to me, I kind of go, what's that is so not worth the risk. The risk reward is not in your favor here by slowing up that much. Um, oh, here's a comment. Um, and Chad said it in the second men's quarter harder than the first. I disagree. We had in the first quarter, Volnes, Klabo and Onger. I would argue that that is your podium coming in. Anger has been skiing like an absolute beast. This course suited him well. Had he not been tripped up, he probably would have been in the final. But coming in, I thought those are the three guys to beat, and they all were in the same heat. So, no, that is not that does not match up against Juve, Nortug, and Pellegrino. Pellegrino, first of all, a much better you know sprinter, I think, when it comes to the freestyle, and and only on like certain courses, he's got to use the Wiley veteran angle at this point. Uh, Nortug hasn't done anything like in even on the world cup like what does he have one podium maybe so no um juve obviously yeah he's a threat so he's pretty good now they did have Kali haverson and haverson to me i thought after watching his double pull in val de fiem when he in that home stretch he looked to me like to be the most powerful flat double puller and in the quarterfinals, and I think in the semis too, he looked powerful in the finishing stretch, and I thought, okay, he could threaten Klabo and be a, a very a dark horse because he's got veteran, the veteran side. He's also kind of got the chip on his shoulder, I think, of you know not having some of the results that some people think he should have. Um, and then the course seemed to suit him well. So shocked that he did not p- uh, pull things out in the final. Man, I, I really am kind of rambling uh, quite a bit here. So I apologize for those of you trying to follow. Like, where are you getting at here? I'm just shooting bullet points, okay? Bullet point thoughts. This is immediate reactions from day one. Here's another one. Uh, the Polish skier, Buri, uh, the stroke of brilliance. It really was a stroke of brilliance. You guys see this move uh, before the hairpin turn. He he went into an all-out sprint and passed the entire field in that move. Now, the reason I say that was a stroke of brilliance, that was the the turning point from a course management perspective on the day, I think, where people realized being first at that turn is important. Now, Bury did not end up advancing because he, he did not have a good enough double pull finish. But I think that's the thing that, that came out. It wasn't like, oh, he blew his match too early. You know, he's got nothing left. It, w- it was more... 
that was a good strategy in terms of you got to be first at that turn because coming into the stadium with the lead, if you have an adequate sprint, it's going to be a, it's going to be a good call for you. Um, so I liked that move. I was bummed that he was not, he did not go on. Cause I think it would have been a cool little underdog story. And you know, the fact that he had that kick in him, uh, was pretty, pretty amazing. It's like, you didn't really see any Clabo stepping other than that. That was kind of the only one. Um, which interesting, this course I thought was a fun, different sprint course in that, the striding sections were kind of true striding sections. We saw a lot of kick and glide. There wasn't a lot of the really aggressive running uphill. It was who who is fast in a in a in a stride. And you know, I noticed throughout the girls and the boys' heats, but particularly the girls, the difference in stride length, like the glide length for some of these athletes. You saw Sundling, all of the Swedes, just tremendous amount of glide on each ski um this was maybe no more evident than in the quarterfinal with diggins because diggins was just battling as hard as she possibly could do you have something you want to say what and then what don't touch that what were your thoughts on the race? Uh, were, you, were you watching ski? Skis? Wait a minute. Okay, so stride length. Um, this was something, you know, Diggins is such a fighter, and she really stuck her nose out there despite it being a classic, you know, classic sprint, her, her expertise, obviously, in skate. Um, but but her her advantage, I think, that she was trying to play and that she can play is she's tough. She's got a big aerobic engine, so high frequency, right? That That's what she tried to, tried to do, going hard from the gun. Um, but the relaxed, long um, kick and glide from the Scandinavian countries, I think, enabled them to stay with Diggins on those portions of the course that weren't quite as running friendly. And that was the difference because Diggins, Diggins uh, has worked on her uh, herringbone, her, her running up the steep uphills. And I think on those portions of the course, she was fine. In fact, she excelled. It was much more the gradual striding sections that she needed to keep the tempo high, whereas they could go um, more relaxed, longer stride it, and, and thus not use as much metabolic energy, it seemed. Um, also, Diggins' double pole is just not on the same level, I think, as the Swedes. You know, like she, and I mean more from a technique perspective, you know, she's she has her hands maybe a little too close, I think, um, her, her waist... Uh, kind of comes back a little bit, uh, or her hips kind of come back early. Or uh, you know, speaking of someone who double pulls a lot but doesn't have great form, I was kind of like digging sort of double pulls like I do. It's like you're not really thinking technique; you're just mu- trying to muscle things out, trying to ski from the heart. And um, so I appreciate it, but but I think some of those some of those technique aspects were on display. Um, and, and if I'm just being critical or critiquing or observant of of the American skiers, it's interesting how different the double pole looks on the women's side between Brennan, Kern, and Diggins. Um, I think Kern's double pole is is kind of right there with the Scandinavians. She's got, um, and she's she's taller, powerful, explosive, but she has kind of the, the technique, the form. She looks just like those other skiers as she comes by in terms of um, where she's planting her poles, um, all of those angles, the body angles as well. Uh, and she looks really good when she's double pulling. And I think she's probably the best double polar in a sprint setting on our side. Brennan has a little bit more of the old school technique. You saw on the finishing stretch in her quarterfinal, especially where she was able to get through to the semis, it was um, her her, her um, back, you know, bending all the way following through, not coming up quite as high, trying to trying to rely more on frequency. Um, and it, it just had a little more of an old school look there to it. Um, so that, that's, I think, I think Brennan's like for, especially for someone who's a distance skier, more or less, like I wouldn't be, Oh, Brennan, we got to change your double pull form completely because, you know, it seemed to me like she had some fight and grit to her on this course that, 
actually ended up working out. I think I think Jesse's would be the one that like from a technique perspective would need maybe more retooling. But at this point, at this stage in her career, like how much how much can you really do other than maybe you go, hey, you know, Diggins, like this is one this one area where you maybe could make a big enough improvement that that it would impact other areas as well, like your skating even and your V2 on the flats and all that stuff. So uh, that's one thing, you know, I just kind of observed watching it. I don't know if anyone else noticed in terms of double pole technique that our, our American women have are kind of a on a, a wider spectrum maybe than, say, the Swedes, who, you know, it's hard to almost distinguish them as they're coming by. And, and when you're announcing this, it is hard. I've, I've messed up you know, some identifying some of these athletes because they all kind of look the same and then their technique kind of looks the same and, and you're zoomed way out. You can't even see a bib number. It's like, who is that coming in through the, to, to win? Um, a lot, a lot of discussion on double pull stuff. I think I want to save that maybe for our next show when we got more time. Uh, but for today, I want to keep up with some of the instant reactions because there's some other good ones. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, Shapah, that quarterfinal. So Togbull goes down. How about the Norwegians, man? They really, Tugbull and Valnes both both hit the deck at key moments. You got to think in Norway, it's a little bit bittersweet today. Yeah, Klabo's king, but on the girls' side, they just got destroyed in the final. And then Valnes, there were as, as many Norwegians in the final as there were French athletes, you know, on the men's side. That's pretty crazy. Um, but Chapa last when, he, when that fall happened and he gets all the way up into first. Pretty cool comeback. Um, but it, it did just go to show that final climb and the double pull was huge. All right. How about the semifinals in the girls semifinals? Did anyone think that in that first semifinal, it looked like everyone was skiing slow? Kind of seemed like that to me. Now she said her thing was skiing away from people. That's how she won in La Russe. <coughs> Sorry, we still got the sickness here. That's how she won in La Russe. And, you know, in that semifinal, at the beginning, it seemed like that's the strategy. She's just going to go out in front. But then about halfway through, man, it really seemed like she was kind of almost and kind of just really relaxed on some of the kick and glide sections in the middle of the course. Like, it, I, I was trying to, it, the body language was, these guys are playing cat and mouse. This is not, she said, skiing away. And then at the hairpin turn, the key point of the course I brought up, it they almost came to like a baby jog. Like who's going to, did one of the like, who's going to go in front, you know, and who's going to get the slipstream thing. So when they came into the finish and that was the fastest time, I believe, all day. It was like 321. Um, I was shocked because I was like, well, she said it doesn't even look like she's skiing fast and she is. Now, did she save something for the final? It, it appeared that that was not the case. Uh, she she kind of was in the front at the beginning, but if you watch that replay, when they got to the herringbone hill where everyone kept getting eaten up, she, she was just kind of demoralized up that hill. It was it was almost like uh, you know there was not, no one got in her way, no one impeded her at all. It was like she just went up a lot slower, and all four Swedes, you know, took off at that point. Um, to me, that's kind of unacceptable. Like that that is a a physiological issue or a, and an end or a mental issue. And we saw from Tirta Unis Vang as well. She ended up, I think, last in the final. Um, and you have to kind of wonder, I guess, on Vang's side, if, you know, the prophecy of trying to chase World Cup dreams, trying to chase World Championship, trying to be overall bib leader, all these things at once is starting to catch up to her a little bit. You know, she's not used to being, she's had a breakout season and, and that's a positive, but it's tough when it's the first time that you've been in the front and been in the front from November. Uh, it's a long season that can be draining. Uh, we know she was sick, so she might also be just kind of rounding into form, but, but I would say that illness is kind of, that's part of the game as well. You know, when you, when you get into the lead and now every weekend is more important, there's more stress, there's more um, reason to be racing all the time, you know, all those things are coming into play. So I think that burden and that weight, you know, it's th what we saw here was kind of a, um, a physical image of that kind of coming to fruition here in a negative sense for the Norwegian, which, which is too bad. I mean, I think if we, if we really want to step back though, Tiro Unis Vang 
at 100% skiing at her very best probably has the potential to beat any of those Swedes, but it's not a likely potential or likely outcome. You know, so if she's at just kind of normal firing, she if, if you think, oh, let's just pretend she didn't get sick after the tour to ski, came into this fresh and firing on all cylinders, I, I think, honestly, the likely scenario is she maybe gets fourth, maybe snags a bronze. But breaking up that Swedish top four was unlikely anyways. So so really this result, you know, it's from a, from a sheer on the paper placing standpoint probably is irrelevant, you know. But I think the bigger concern is she just didn't look like she was fighting at all. And we know kind of what's been happening in the last month in terms of her health and sort of the narrative all, all over. And so I, I'm nervous for Tiradunas Vang moving forward, I guess, in this championship. Hopefully she can turn a corner, but... But this wasn't a great sign, you know. I I think it's very possible she would come. She'll come out of this without any medals in any event. Maybe a relay, but but probably not any individual medals. And um, so and that's kind of a bummer, you know. And and it, and if at the end of the season it also turns out that she doesn't win the overall, you know, even more so a bummer, right? So that was that was kind of my takeaway from that final. The Norwegians really crushed uh, or were crushed by the Swedes. Um, you know, in fourth place was that Lynn's Fawn kind of left out of the little celebration. I feel bad. Like you saw on TV, I think the three uh, Swedes in front, you know, with the flag and then the podium ceremony. Uh, you, maybe maybe invite Lynn's Fawn over. You know, like you guys are all the same team. I, I think, you know, Dahlquist didn't look particularly thrilled. And I'm wondering if, you know, now they decide for the team sprint, you know, they were just going whoever's one, two is going to be skiing you know, for the team's bread. So Dahlquist, maybe we won't see her. I don't, I don't really know how that all works. I can hypothesize, I guess, right? That's, that's my job to do is speculate, but maybe that's why she wasn't as thrilled. You also know the backstory, I think a little bit with the Swedes in terms of in the summer, who was training with the team and who wasn't. I I think it was Frida Carlson and Maya Dahlquist who kind of went and did their own thing away from national team stuff. So I don't think it's all, you know, um, lovey-dovey, ducks and bunnies on the duckies and bunnies if you don't get the reference k fan duckies and bunnies um anyway uh we won't explain it but you know everything's bright and cheery i don't think that's the case in the swedish camp necessarily so it's it is kind of a you know the press might go wow swedish sweep and top four places but i think i think there's a lot of drama going on in that swedish camp there's got to be you know and how do you choose a four, a four by five kilometer relay too like I mean, talk about impossible. I think it'll be Frida, Maya, Yana Sundling, and, oh gosh. I mean, maybe you'd have Rebom now because those, you know, Rebom and Sundling are, if they're in top shape, in top form, you know, they, they have some versatility too. They can go on distance races. So that's going to be, that's going to be interesting moving forward. Team sprint drama, uh, for sure. Now, the, um, oh, semis, notes. Let's see. Volness. Volness was kind of the big story in the guy's side on the semis. Well, actually, we should step back. We did have J.C. Schoonmaker make it into the semis. That was pretty. That was a pretty big deal. Now, he sort of had a gift handed to him with the crash that took place in his quarterfinal um, that, that moved him ahead, which, yeah, I think that was the Moylanin crash. Oh, that was... It was so romantic. This, this was the highlight, I think, of the entire day from both um, a dramatic, romantic standpoint and also from just a sheer athletic standpoint. Go back and watch the quarterfinal. Moylanin, um, he he should be the most mad right now because he came out and was skiing great, and it wasn't even his fault. Someone clipped his ski behind him. It was the, oh, who was it now? Gosh, I don't have it written in my notes. Um it was somebody to register, but I can't. I don't think it was a Norwegian, was it? Uh, anyway, go back and watch it. Moylan gets tangled, and then he like they they're like hugging. No, oh, it was a Swede, I think. So they're like hugging it out because they got so tangled up. It was depressing because I think Moylan had he just, he looked on form, you know, like he was going to be able to take it all the way to a final. Maybe the youngster, the world junior champion, he does have an explosive double pull. So I was like, oh man, I want to see this guy get in the final, and mix things up. Um, and then, right afterwards, yeah, it was the Swede, because the Swede, who he got tangled up with, broke a pole. And 
a Swedish coach sprints across the herringbone hill, which was all of like, I don't know, 12 yards long. It was a short but steep, punchy climb. He sprints across it and like tosses a pole to the Swede athlete, Swedish athlete. And the 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 um the guts from that coach, the maneuvering, the toss, everything was just it was unbelievable. It was the it was the most athletic thing I think we saw on this course the entire day. You know, Clombo, give him all the credit. There was no special Clombo moment, though. Oh, speaking of Clombo and my prop bets, uh, if you listen to the beginning of the show, how, did you guys hear the bri- How many times did they mention Clombo and his his interesting line? I heard it in the final and the semifinal for sure. You could maybe argue it was mentioned in the quarterfinal, but for sure, Keegan brought it up in the final too, where, oh, look at he's taking the outside line. He was out of the tracks at the beginning of the course. So that's interesting too. Like, I noticed that right away. All the girls were in the tracks the entire time. First heat of the guys, like everyone's outside of the tracks. Was that a Clabo-led initiative? Was that like the guys just didn't really, they were coming in down that first turn at higher speed? I don't know, but um, that was interesting. And then they ended up getting back in the tracks too. But yeah, Clabo, Clabo did. He got mentioned. He's got all the lines figured out. Um, one of the lines that was kind of weird is before the hairpin sharp turn, Clabo was always on the very outside classic track um and people really struggled coming out of the herringbone hill finding this classic track spot and Clabo was like you know I'm, I'm always taking this outside one and in the semifinals when there was a crash up behind him and he kind of had everything wrapped up anyway but except for I think it was Lucas Shanova was on the inside track and I was thinking what's Clabo's plan right now he's like five tracks over you know, like he must really like that that one drag, and no one else was taking it. And then, see what he would do is he'd come off the top outside classic track, and on the hairpin turn, he could make a very aggressive skate push, and sort of go outside to inside and cut across people. I think more dramatically than if you were trying to take the shortest line, the most direct U turn. You were you were scrubbing speed. You didn't really have as much of a physical presence. And it's like Clabo knew that every single time. He even in the final when he led, he did not he did not cut over the inside classic track. He stayed on that far outside one and strode up it and then cut across. So little things like that, I think, you know, hey, people need to learn this. It, it, obviously Clabo is demonstrating that the shortest line is not always the fastest line. And, you know, sometimes probably too, the fastest line is maybe not always the best line because there's an element in the sprint races of who can take up the most physical presence. Uh, But yeah, that was a a little observation to notice as far as his, my prop bets came true, came to fruition. Everyone lauding Clabo about his, uh, his ability tactically taking the right lines. Um, Other notes here on the finish. Well, I mean, obviously disappointing day for Ben Ogden today. He looked good at the start of his heat. And just kind of everyone sort of skied away from him on the second half. So, you know, we'll see today. We might end up being able to get some clips from Ogden um, from the race eh, interviews post post race to get his thoughts about that. If we do, we can we'll try and upload them for you. Uh, but you know that's that's too bad. I thought today, you know, the, we don't know anything as far as Ben goes in terms of like an illness or whatever. We know he's flown back and forth, raised some raised in Vermont, but but. It seems to me like he's done everything right to have a great world championship experience. He has some momentum and some confidence from shaking things up in certain sprint heats, quarters, and semis. Val de Fiam obviously was a big deal. And and in in the um, previous World Cups that we've had, he has been just a slip or a scrub away from making it to the finals. Now, last, I think it was Toblock, right? The last World Cup, it, it wasn't as much of that. Right, he. I think if I'm recalling correctly, he didn't advance, and it was kind of one of those. Well, he wasn't tripped. He didn't like break a pole or anything, anything weird like that. It was more just he kind of got outpaced, and that's sort of how it looked today. So, you know, I'm not sure if maybe there's some staleness. Uh, Sometimes that can happen too. It's so hard for an endurance athlete to come into a championship and be the sharpest you can be, and and not only that, but maybe not even be the sharpest you can be, but just be in top form, relatively top form. Um, I think sometimes, I know in my own experience, I always, in college when I was a runner, I just really, you know, I, everything came down to that conference championship or whatever. 
um, regional meet, you know, to qualify for national. So I was always so hyper intense about like everything coming down to the final molecule in the taper process and the buildup process. You know, you're like planning six months out how you're going to be razor sharp and totally fresh on that one day that matters. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I had some conference conference uh, or championships where I thought I had done everything perfectly. I'd tapered perfectly. I'd slept perfectly, brought my mileage and intensity down. And then on that day, I felt like super fresh while I was warming up and I felt like crap in the race, you know, and, and, and I've had some experiences where I've, uh, you know, as I got older, I was like, okay, I'm not going to bring it down as much. You know, I'll try to, I, I had some runner friends go, you know, in my taper, I, I went from running 95 mile weeks to like 60 the week of conference. And that was what worked. And I was like, oh, you know, I might try that. Um, and one of my, <coughs> sorry, one of my later, later race seasons, I, I kind of did that. And I remember feeling kind of just normal in the warm up and in the race, I felt more normal. Like it was more familiar. It wasn't like I had this extra juice or anything. It was just more more normal. And, you know, as I got older, I think I adopted that a little bit more. And, and I think, you know, you could, uh, when you get to that point, you don't like back off 10 or 12 days in advance or, you know, kind of what the, the science says. If you just go, I'm going to lower the volume a little bit in two weeks before, and then like two days before, I'm going to go really easy. To me, that almost seemed to be like the secret sauce is don't really change up your volume or anything you're doing differently until, you you can lower it a little bit, but not much. And then like two days before, if you don't do anything, don't worry about it. Like that's, those are the days that maybe more determine sometimes what has happened. I know the science might say something different, you know, like where it's, you know, if you do a hard workout within six days of your race, like you're only hurting yourself. Okay, fine. You know, so don't do a hard workout six days before, but, but like in terms of volume, like what you're used to rhythm wise, body wise, sometimes it's like more about just lowering it to like 80% of what you're used to or 70% of what you're used to. And then the day before you go on like a 10 minute jog and then shut it down. So I don't know. <laughs> I I joke that I have like a one day taper now where I just, I ski for fun all the time, all the time, all the time. And then like the day before a big race, I'm not going to ski at all. Like I don't ski at all. I go for a run in the morning and then I take the rest of the day off because it's like, I, you know, I'm probably going to be double polling a lot the next day. So having that recovery is huge. But anyway, kind of circling back to what the conversation at hand about these, the, you know, tapering and how hard it is to be sharp. Um, I think that's something that American fans do have to remember and recognize is uh, this is a very tricky, delicate balance. And aside from all the other factors that make skiers go fast from a technician standpoint, a strategy standpoint, and just a random luck standpoint, it, it is quite difficult for these athletes to physically feel perfect on the day. Which makes it amazing how how Clabo, you know, he never seems to let us down. You know, he's never showed up at a championship where you, you where he's just been totally out of it. Okay, sorry. Now that I just said that, as I was saying that, thinking of Beijing and kind of the opening couple events there. I think skiathlon. He didn't have a good day. Uh, that might have been it. Uh, but but you know the events he's supposed to win. He's there. He's in top form and he delivers. And it's just remarkable. It is something that is truly kind of once in a generation. Um, you know, people talk a lot about greatest of all time and Petter Nortug thinks he's in this conversation just because of his world championship medal count. And it's just absolutely, it's garbage baloney. Like there's no one who's as dominant as Clabo. And, and, and not only is he facing probably stiffer competition and people, you know, Petter was an innovator and, and, you know, transformed sprinting and skiing as a whole, maybe, you know, to some degree as, as well. But the Petter Nortug argument is a little bit like Jordan, where, as my brother once famously said, Michael Jordan played against the athletic equivalents of my dad, who is a six foot tall, white male distance runner. Uh, and so, of course, Jordan was able to rip, rip people apart, whereas like LeBron is going against freaks in nature and carrying teams on his back. That whole argument, I think Petter and Clabo, it's sort of similar where, you know, Petter, what Petter was able to do, he made a slight change that made him quite dominant. Clabo's had to like elevate from that to find dominance. And, and it's not, it's not like others haven't followed from a technique innovation standpoint. Like the rest of the world cup is trying to do everything that Clabo's doing and they're, they are replicating it technique wise. The difference is Clabo just has the secret spidey sense to like always be in first. And I mean, it's not like 
not only is he winning, I mean, he's winning in an event that no one else can even reliably make it past the semifinals. There is no other athlete that is reliably always going against Clabo in the finals, you know, which is, is astonishing. We we came into this event thinking, okay, Richard Juve, you know, Shanova's going to be there. Eric Valdez is going to be there. Um, Anger's looking good. But, like, at the end of the day, the only guarantee of someone getting into the final is Clabo. And so I think if you look at a sport where getting to the final is a roll of the dice for every athlete, but then there's one athlete who wins every single time, that level of dominance is something to be cherished. It's it's very unique. So I, I don't think it could be overstated enough, actually, just how incredible this run is that we're watching. And uh, opened up the pre-show saying, five golds, not a possibility. Now I said no, but that's because I honestly think six golds might be the benchmark for Clabo here. So um, as far as what race he needs to win, thought about this as I was on my skate ski workout the other day, yesterday, um, trying to up the skate ski volume. Everyone thinks that all I do is double pull. This is not true. Um, I was, I actually, I was, I was striding, classic striding in the morning and, um, a, a Leadville resident who shall not be named, but knows his classic skiing. He saw me coming. He goes, dude, you're flying. And I was like, yeah, you know, like people don't think I classic stride ever, but I got to get, I, I do. I like it. Um, anyway, I was skate skiing through CMC and I, I was thinking, even though skate skiing to me is a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a mystery. You know, we're still working at it. There's, there's some things I'm okay at and some things I really got to work at. The thing that occurred to me is the individual start, you know, 15K skate race is for the men. And, and if it was that distance for the women, it would be, I, I don't think the 10K, we can quite say the same thing. But if we go to equal distances, so like the 20K skate individual start, I think this might be the most, um, pure demonstration of someone's like skiing athletic ability and you you might initially go why not the individual start classic race and the first thing i thought of was well that's a good point you know fair enough but here's the reason in a skate race the entire course is an athlete's canvas you know so what kind of art are they going to create and you as far as make it in a classic race is the opposite right you you all these Anywhere there's a classic track, like you're, the course is kind of decided for you. So it's not quite as much of a, a, a means by which we can determine an athlete's, you know, athletic fingerprint, so to speak. So the individual starts skate where there's, it's just you against the clock. It's you against the course. It's a distance that is not so far that it is really shifting over to just a completely aerobic mental battle it's not so short that you know you 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 can't not be fit that is the race i think that like really it shows someone's um again course iq technique and physiological economy um even pacing strategy all of that is on the table and i think it's the true demonstration of who's the best skier now you could say well one huge component that is eliminated is the fact that you're not racing against someone like isn't this sport about racing yes true and and i think that is an exciting element however just too much in our races today like if you wanted to say who's the fastest skier you can't say it's always the person who just beats other people. The fastest skier is the person who can do something the fastest. So that's where the individual start comes in. Now, the best skier, you might say, is the person who can beat other people in a head-to-head race. All right, that's fair enough, but it's a totally different game. Like, I guess I should maybe preface my statement that the way we determine who the fastest skier is is with those individual start races, and the 15K freestyle might be the most pure form. Now, if I if I had control, fist, czar, I would, I would also love to see the 50K in an individual start format. I, I actually think these world championships, they're just, they're not very fair in terms of like giving each type of skier an opportunity to shine because by having those 50Ks be in a mass start format on these very difficult technical courses, where there's not a lot of room, you know, like if you have to be positioned in the front to do well or find a way to get to the front. Um, and, and then there's, there's all the pack dynamics, the cat and mouse games that get played. Uh, there's, there's no real chance for someone to like, I don't know, who's just a purist, an aerobic purist to really make a name for themselves. And I think that's kind of sad. I I actually think, and the other thing is too, because there's classic and skate, like the difference between a 50 K skate specialist, 50 K classic specialist, 
can be pretty dynamic or, or you know pretty dramatic as well. You know, I I think it'd be cool if at these world championships you actually had a 50k individual start classic race on one end of the championships and then the 50k classic mass or skate mass start on the other end. Um and and have it separated by enough where like you could do just one or do both uh and it wouldn't mess you mess you up so much. I mean, this calendar we have we haven't seen like any real distance races. It's kind of sad. You know, like no skiathlon, no mass start. Um and, and it's just it's a bummer. So people out there listening right now are like, dude, let it breathe, man. Let it breathe. I'm trying to rush. I'm trying to rush. I got other things to do. I want to deliver for Grip Wax Nation, so the thoughts are coming at you a million miles an hour. Um but yeah, I think I think that's that would be a cool addition to the calendar. We we seem to be uh going so much to sprint stuff and mass start stuff. And I know it's an easier draw for viewers. It's a more attractive product. Um, it certainly takes a little more skill to to make an individual start race exciting, I think, from like a broadcasting standpoint. But one, it can be done. Two, this is the traditional aspect of our sport. The individual start is kind of, that's what we saw in the 1920s, okay? So like you got to, I think, hold on to some of that. And and um, it would just be interesting to see who's kind of got the medal to contend in like a 50K individual start. And, you know, they, they could maybe even make it interesting. Like if you want to do a 50K mass start at the end, fine. But maybe make that 50K individual classic at the beginning of the championships Make it really old school. Like, have some comp- old school home and colon, okay? Like, you know, 225K loop type stuff. <clears throat> have them be remote. Have some sections of the course be not piston bully groomed. You know, like thin, narrow. I want to see people have to deal with some crap, you know? Um, I think that would be absolutely exciting. And and if you had enough cameras, angles working, which which would not be that difficult to do i i don't think you know even if you made it this monstrous loop you could definitely get some the technology we have we can do like drones we can do pretty much anything we want so i think it, i think it could be actually a really sweet event an old school 50k individual start in the world championships bring it back let's do it um okay i've got tons of tons of talkers here in my show notes there's so much reflection i have to do on today and i don't want to keep this show going super long. We're going to try and keep it quick, get it out there for the folks. So we do have a Sport Hill 6. Those are the Sport Hill 6 talkers of the day. We can maybe bring them up tomorrow um, or even on one of the days off, I can bring them up. We'll say since this since this show's dropping here today, um, snow update for those of you locally thinking, should I do the Leadville Loppet? We did get a nice, a nice um, two, three inches of snow here in Leadville, Colorado yesterday. So um, I was in CMC last night doing a little classic striding. It seems to me like those bare sections are now covered. However, how much, how much is covered? Like when, when they, when they cement groom that thing, they're going to pull up some stuff. So I can't say for sure that it's going to be a rock free course. It's definitely much, much better than it would have been. Um, and we'll see if the no mineral belt grooming news as of right now, you know, obviously they're going to groom for Saturday morning's race, but um, it'd be nice if they groomed it right now too, just to make sure it's nice and firm. Last year, we spent a lot of time double pulling in the skate deck. That's not quite as pure and fun, but you know, if you're going to leave like, you know, my pillow type conditions on the outside right-hand corner, what are we going to do? Uh, so there's your, there, your Leadville Loppet. It's, uh, it's coming together. A miracle for those organizers who, you know, are charging a hundred dollars this year. So I don't know. I, I don't think... I don't think they're giving away any fantastic cash prizes that I'm aware of, but there is the free Superfay afterwards, and that's always a riot. It's kind of a hit, one of the classic races. Um, I haven't heard back from any listeners about some of their favorite Loppet experiences this year. However, I was Googling random races and came across one that I missed, and now I'm ticked. Last weekend, when I was off, I had no race was depressed that I wasn't in Bemidji, not flying my private jet to the Finlandia. I realized that in Durango, they had that 30K skate race. It would have been great. It was competitive. It's a great course, Durango Nordic Center, one of my absolute favorite places to ski. And uh, that reminds me, I do need to do a show where I talk about the best places in Colorado to ski. So if I forget that, someone remind me because I do want to discuss that. But 
missed that race. So I, for some reason, I thought that was always later February. It was on the 18th this year. Brilliant. Good job, Durango. Um, you got you to advertise that a little bit more somehow because I definitely would have made, made a huge trip down there to race it. Um, and it's a, and 30 K skate, that's the best distance for skate. Let's face it. You know, like 20 K skate is fun too, but a 30 K skate, it's just far enough where you, you, that extra 10 K, it makes it a little more marathon feel. Um, 50 K is way too long for a skate race. Everyone knows it. Um, the Holman Cole is going to be just a riot this year. 50 K skate. Um, okay. The world cup guys, 50 K skate isn't bad because they're all on like hypersonic waxes. And so they're, they're really only skiing for like an hour and 40 minutes, but for the rest of us, normal people, the 30k distance is about right, and um, and so next year maybe I got to get down there. I thought I was going to try and do that race last year, didn't do it. Next year it's got to happen. Right now it's freezing cold. My wax report recommendation for the Leadville Loppet. Um, I don't know. Actually, um, maybe we need to break the news that the Cedar Skier Podcast has a new wax line. You didn't know this, maybe, but get ready to invest. Okay, get ready to invest because we've got some new waxes that we're, we're coming at you with. Um, here they are. So the cedarskier.com wax line hasn't hit the shelves yet. We're still in the development process. Um, but I've tested out these waxes and they're phenomenal. Okay, first one we've got is Beaver Snot. Cedarskier Beaver Snot. Now this wax, this is a grip wax. Um, super sticky in all conditions. It's made from real mucus. Okay. Now, I know what you're wondering is, like, is this environmentally friendly? Are you out there, like, trapping and killing beavers to make your um, Cedar Skier beaver snot line? No. No, we're not. We were very kind. In fact, um, I love... Beavers are one of my favorite animals. I went to Bemidji State University, so I was officially a beaver. Um, So what we do is we actually... um, What what is it that we do? What should I say? I don't want to get fired. Uh... We extract the snot from the beavers in a very comforting way, and we let them. It's um, it's all cage free. It's organic. Uh, what's another label I can put in there? All right, so beaver snot. Anyway, beaver snot. Really excited about this grip wax because if you're one of those guys who's frustrated, you know, you're just you're like my dad. Like it needs to stick. If it doesn't stick, I'm miserable. Try the beaver snot line. Uh, it's a little bit of a hassle to apply. We haven't really dialed this in, so it's like picture clister only twice the headache. Um, but it works. Once you once you're out there, you won't regret it. Now, we're looking at some other ways to make this a faster grip. We'll let you know. And also icing has become quite a bit of a problem in certain conditions. But anyway, beaver snot, that's out there. Um, here's another one that we're st- if you're if you're more of a clister purist, but you're frustrated that even with clister, you have to choose the right kind of clister. Try the caring clister. Um, trust me, it will be a nightmare, but it will stick on anything it wants. So caring clister coming at you as well comes in a purple tube. Um, we're excited about that. The Karen. Uh, also, last one we're looking at is a pink grip wax. This is Bubba Gump's bubblegum grip wax. That's hard to say. Why do Bubba Gump's bubblegum grip wax? Because we need a pink for those conditions that are, you know, kind of more on the red side, but maybe a little bit lighter snow. So this is like for that light, dry, fluffy Colorado snow when it's you know, like 30 degrees. Um, this will work for that. And then finally, now this one, this one we're actually working with Swix. So Swix Marathon Powder. Um, you remember, you guys remember the Swix Black Wolf line? Like Black Wolf. Why was it called Black Wolf? No one really, no one really knows. But um, we were kind of thinking with that uh, Swix White, the marathon, the marathon powder. Why not have Swix Marathon Powder crack cocaine? Because it kind of looks like crack cocaine. All right, we're probably gonna get fired for saying that. No, okay, sorry. If this pot Swix, we're not working with Swix. This is totally fake. It's not true. But. Seriously, it'd be hilarious. I think if you saw that in an advertising bottle, like the Black Wolf had this intimidating Black Wolf with like red eyes, you know, the HF wax that everyone needs, this would be Swix Marathon crack cocaine. I'm not even sure what you'd have as a picture for it. Like you'd maybe have to go with just a picture of like that, whatever interstate runs through Miami, Florida, you know, like, I don't know, something like that. Uh, Can I say that? That's not bad, right? I, 
I don't know. Um, I, I'm taking that from Dave Barry because Dave Barry, you know, he always talked about in his books is Miami. Like that's kind of a, the thing. Um, okay. So there's that. Um, I guess that's how we wrap it up. If you stuck around for the rest of this show, those interesting little, by the way, those were all fake. So none of that's actually happening. You don't have to invest in our wax line. Just some goofiness, having a little fun. Um, you know, if you do want to invest in cedarscare.com, I, I'm not going to deny anyone making financial contributions to the podcast. But um, anyway, we'll be back tomorrow with another recap of that day's actions. What is on tap for tomorrow? We got like team spread. Someone, someone check the schedule right now. Okay, I'll look at it quick. So tomorrow, skiathlon, 30K for the men, 15K for the women. Probably see a big performance out of Seaman Hedstick Kruger. I think I like Jesse Diggins in this event, obviously. Um, fans should be really pumped for her. Kertu Niskanen, Niskanen and um, Parmakoski, I think, could be tough. Obviously, Frida Carlson will be back, I assume. So this should be a really exciting race. One of the best uh, races out there, I think, to skiathlon distance. So, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll make predictions morning of again, and then you just have to trust me. My predictions were not great this morning, but anyway, it's, it is how it goes. So, we're glad you joined us here this morning. Cedar Skier Podcast. We'll see you tomorrow. Keep on striving. Keep on skiing.